I have no idea where we are, but we're getting better. <laughs> Isn't that what you think as a software developer all the time? You hope so. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a thousand tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and LA bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $1,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job, but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. This episode is sponsored by BuddyBuild. BuddyBuild is a mobile-optimized continuous integration and delivery platform that takes minutes to set up. Thousands of mobile development teams love BuddyBuild because it's the fastest way to distribute their apps to users and gather bug reports, feedback, and crash reports. Then use built-in integrations for their bug trackers and tools like Slack to seamlessly integrate that information back into their development process. For a free trial, go to devchat.tv slash buddy. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 168 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel, we have James Zuber. Hello from Minneapolis. Lane Mosley. Hello from Utah. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. A quick shout out about a couple of conferences we've got coming up toward the end of the year. We have DevOps Remote Comp. I've got a couple of web development ones in the middle, but then we also have uh, NoSQL Remote Comp. So if you're interested in those, go check them out. Uh, we have a special guest this week, and that's Simone Civetta. Hello, everybody. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, of course. So I'm um, a developer from Italy. I'm actually based in France today. I'm mainly doing uh, project work, and uh, I've been working for the last uh, couple of years for Louis Vuitton. I'm making uh, business and private apps. What we brought you on today to talk about is automated code metrics in Swift. Do you want to give yeah. us just a really brief introduction to that? What do you mean by automated code metrics? Yeah, of course. So uh, automated code metrics in Swift especially are a way to gather the most of information about your code, the way you code, the uh, mistakes you've probably done, and uh, to collect them in a dashboard and read them periodically to have a clear idea of where you're at with your code. I think I've used tools that do this kind of thing in Ruby. I haven't set any up on any of my projects in Swift or Objective-C, but I think the idea is is that they check things like cyclomatic complexity or test coverage or things like that. Are those the kinds of metrics you're looking at? Yeah, sure. So um, we are uh, basically targeting uh, code coverage today, code complexity, uh, duplications, um, we also can have other information like the depth of inheritance, uh, non-commented uh, source um, line statements, and other code issues uh, like uh, uh, the code issues you will probably get from a linting process. Very cool. And so the automatic part is just running it in uh, continuous integration? Yeah, totally. You can run it uh, through Fastlane. It's actually my favorite way of, of running them. Um, my fast lane is uh, plugged into my, my Jenkins, and uh, so it actually performs uh, checks every night. But also you can, uh, you can do it manually if you prefer, but it's, since it's a kind of a long process and you, want to, you don't want to impact your build time, which is already quite long, 
thanks to Swift, you'd probably want to do that in a, in a continuous integration system. When you say code complexity, I'm really curious about you know the exact uh, strategies you use to determine you know code complexity, or if you know much about that. There are two kinds of code complexity I'm kind of interested in. Two, uh, one is cyclomatic complexity, and the other one is an end um, path complexity. So today's tools in Swift only support uh, cyclomatic complexity. So they basically count uh, uh, the number of branches your code has. So it basically counts the if, uh, the switches, and so forth. So this is kind of uh, of cool because you you get a number for each function you have or each class you have, and that number uh, basically doesn't say anything if you uh, at first, but after a while you understand that it's kind of really really uh, connected to uh, to the difficulty you have to understand uh, a given class or a given function. Another thing is that in Swift today. The tool we use is called Lizard. It's a small Python script that uh, reads all your code and understands where branches are. It's not the only one. We can also use a SwiftLint, uh, although uh, Lizard gives you a full uh, calculation of all your classes and on, on your functions, and not only uh, those who who pass a given threshold. So if it's written in Python, does it have some way of recognizing those branches in Swift because the syntax isn't going to be the same. So it supports a wide range of languages. It doesn't support Swift only. It supports Java, C++, and so so forth. It's basically a code uh, a code parser. It can learn, I mean, of course, you, you give it the code grammar and, and kind of understand what the code, how the code branches, basically. I know if, it, if it's clear enough. Yeah, that makes sense. It, just, it has support for multiple languages. If I wanted to add a language to it, say, um, I don't know, PHP or Ruby or something, there's an easy way to do that? Yeah, Ruby's already supported uh, out of the box. Uh, JavaScript is supported as well, for example. But if you want to uh, add a language that doesn't exist today or other languages that are not supported, like Haskell, for example, uh, you just have to uh, provide write Lizard with a, with a reader, which uh, actually is basically a list of um, of keywords who uh, compose your languages. That's basically all. For example, uh, the language parser for Java is like 40 lines. Uh, for Swift is uh, 60 or 70, if I recall well. So it's quite, it's quite easy. So the parsing itself seems like it's fairly straightforward if you want to do it it's, for a new language. Just yeah, the syntax it, and it, it's super easy. Super easy. Determining if statements, switch statements. Yeah, totally. when we we talk about cyclomatic complexity, you know, that's the number of nested if statements or switch statements that are within a function yeah. or, or a class. Why is that important? Like, how how do we use this information to make our code better? Uh, yeah, so I can provide two examples, uh, which is uh, actually taken from my direct experience. Um, the first one is, uh, so I do project work, and I sometimes go into a project which I haven't coded myself from scratch, so I actually have no idea of uh, how the code is. Uh, I should really read through all the classes, all the functions, 
at first I have no idea of the complexity of the heart of the difficulty I will have into understanding what the code does. So the first thing I could do in such case is to um, have a, a rapid uh, scan through through a cyclomatic complexity analyzer like Lizard, and so I will understand uh, in a, in a few moments which are the most uh, important and or also the hardest classes to understand. Well, in a in a given project, I guess like five uh, percent of the classes are like almost uh, it's not really well coded or it's too hard to understand. So, cyclomatic complexity gives you that uh, idea in, in a few moments, and so you can skip all the classes you don't care about and just get into the the, the point and read the one, two, or ten elements which will uh, take you much time to uh, decipher. One thing that I've seen with cyclomatic complexity is that longer methods tend to have a higher cyclomatic complexity score. And the reason is, is because there's a lot more going on in there. And so it creates more branches that you can follow throughout the code. And so if you have to hold all of what everything is going on in your head to understand that method, then there's a lot more to keep track of there. And usually you can solve this by breaking some of it up into new classes or new methods and setting things up so that they call into each other. And that way you have a much smaller, less complex part of the code that you're going to actually execute to get work done. Totally. Actually, most of the times code is, is not hard by itself, especially in mobile apps. It actually gets harder when the developer doesn't separate methods how they should be. He doesn't extract them. So the whole complexity thing is about you not being able to understand what uh, the code does. The longer a method is, the harder it is for your mind to keep track of what is actually going on. So um, complexity is actually uh, is quite, quite cool for that. So this was the, the first example. And another example is uh, through day-to-day -day work. I generally like to set up a dashboard for that so we can follow the evolution of the code base throughout the weeks and throughout the days. And it gets almost like a, a game, you know, you, uh, you compete with uh, your fellow uh, programmers and you see who uh, scored the better, who actually uh, created a method which, in which your, uh, your code complexity scores a, a really bad number. So it's kind of useful for that. So what's the difference between cyclomatic complexity and n-path complexity? N-path complexity is basically uh, an exponential value. Uh, this is because for each statement, uh, a cyclomatic complexity actually counts basically if it's a branch statement, and that's not nothing, not nothing much. The n-path complexity counts all the possible branches and all the possible paths your application can actually go through uh, with regards to your code. So let's say you have uh, three nested uh, statements, three nested ifs, for example, uh, the cyclomatic complexity says, says uh, okay, this is a cyclomatic of three, whereas the n-path complexity can give you a number of uh, around eight, for instance. From my own experience, I've seen 
codes in which we had uh, an end path complexity of uh, like 200,000 and that was uh, that was massive uh, and actually uh, allowed us to say okay this code is trapped here it will take uh, well much time to to understand it and to and to uh, refactor that so end path is over the entire code base or the entire class I, I i'm not sure i still understand that okay so cyclomatic complexity and end path complexity they are uh, actually about uh, uh, code blocks so they work uh, they can work they okay. can both work for a function or for a class for um i'd say for a package that's nothing which changes between that which the end path and cyclomatic complexity for that it's actually about how the branch affects your account so for oh, okay. uh, for uh, a cyclomatic complexity of course every if for every switch counts as one whereas for end path complexity it's not the presence of our if or not, which counts. It's actually how many branches you, you have. So it sounds like end path complexity can get huge very quickly. It sounds exponential. Totally. Yeah, it, it gets huge very quickly, especially if you have a uh, really uh, deep, uh, you have really deep code. For example, if you have a pyramid of doom, well, the cyclomatic complexity may or may not be a high value, where, whereas uh, Quite often, the end-path complexity is really high in those cases. So with these different values, like how do you use the different values? What values of cyclomatic complexity or end-path are like warnings or what are too high? Like how do you how do you use the values once you get them? They're basically used for refactoring purposes. So uh, to understand which are the method, uh, which methods need to be reworked. We generally know that an end path complexity and a high end path complexity, as I was saying before, is a synonym for a, a deeply nested code. This is code which can be immediately, almost immediately refactored by extracting methods. Uh, when you have high cyclomatic complexity, well, it generally means the method is too long or uh, the class is too long and you have too many lines. It's a similar insight, but uh, with different nuances. Uh, still, it's a good value for determining your technical debt. So it gives you an idea of what you, your work should be focused on when you're doing refactoring. That makes sense. Do you have ideas like what numbers you should start to be worried about? Which ones you should definitely start refactoring? Mm, yeah, so for uh, cyclomatic complexity, we generally say about uh, around... 10 or 15 and for a, for a end path for a method yeah and the end path complexity we generally say sorry uh, about 80 something like that when you automate this do you set up some kind of alert that says hey you're too complex or do you just check on it periodically and see where you're at when the psychomatic complexity or the end path complexity are uh, above uh, a certain threshold uh, we generally show a warning in our uh, in our panel. Like Swiftlink does that if the psychomatic complexity surpasses a certain value. In that case, you will a uh, uh, warning will be shown, or in some cases even an error, so the application stops compiling. Can you like integrate that with GitHub and like have a little badge? Yes and no. So I'd say if you if you use Swiftlint, you can. 
Swiftlink okay. actually generates a warning, which are actually Xcode compatible, and those warnings can be integrated uh, quite easily into GitHub with uh, services, with uh, like um, SaaS services, and uh, you can easily have uh, you know your yellow or red lines in your in your GitHub. Lizard doesn't do that. Uh, Lizard actually uh, gives you a full report. You should maybe integrate that with other tools like uh, like uh, SonarCube. So Lizard, does it like give a report like based on functions? Like it'll just list all your functions and show you what the you know the numbers are per function or something like that? Totally, totally. It really nice. works like that. Yeah. I actually my talk was also about how to integrate all those uh, uh, metrics into a more complete dashboard. It's another direction we can we can go through. Yeah, let's talk about that. Let's talk about how do we integrate this and other tools so we can get good feedback on the state of our code base. You know, what's how it's been changing. So, what do you what do you recommend? Uh, okay, so one of the uh, the tools we have in place is uh, SonarCube, as I was saying before. So, SonarCube basically is a hub for uh, different metrics. Of course, it, it deals with cyclomatic complexity and duplications and code coverage. It creates a sort of a, of a dashboard which contains all those metrics and can show you for each class you have where the issues are. It also computes, I'd say, a technical debt value, which is average number of days you should spend on refactoring a given code. What's nice is that it's kind of visual. You can build a, a nice charts with that. Uh, so it can, it's kind of um, well suited for a continuous integration screen at your, at your workplace. And uh, also allows for uh, uh, searching through, through the various metrics and doing uh, composite searches and comparing different values of different metrics to better understand the quality of your code. So I'm curious about the technical debt metric. I've never heard it expressed in a in a unit of days, how many days per week or whatever. Yeah. How does that work? I, mean, I wasn't familiar with it before uh, uh, joining my company. It's actually a Java company. They, it was founded by old-time uh, Java developers. And they all had that notion of technical debt, which I wasn't familiar with. It's actually a number of minutes, which is associated with each kind of metric. Of course, just an estimation, uh, but for each value, it gives you uh, a number of, of hours, minutes, of days, which you spend on refactoring that. At the end of your analysis, you have a, a sum of all those minutes, which can build up into, into days of working for resolving all the all the issues. For instance, uh, if you have SwiftLint, you uh, can have uh, like issues like uh, my parentheses are separated by by uh, white space, and that correction takes like five seconds. So if I have thousands of those uh, corrections to do, well, it multiplies, of course, the number of seconds needed for uh, for repairing that. And it gives you an estimate of uh, of taking out that. Have you um, tested that metric, and does it seem pretty accurate? No, it's not accurate at all. Okay, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's what I was wondering because you know everyone works 
at a different pace. And so it just seems like that's, that'd be kind of far-fetched. But One other metric that I've seen that is kind of nonsensical but useful at the same time is in Agile you have your velocity. And... You know, it goes up and down as people are more or less productive. You have somebody out of town for the week, whatever, right? But the thing is, is that relative to the number last week and the week before and the week before, I can tell you that we're doing better or worse. So yeah, that makes sense. So if you have some number related to technical debt, uh, no matter how accurate it is, as far as this is how many days per week you should spend working on this stuff. If my number is going down as we steadily work, then I know that we're making progress. If it's going up, then I know that we probably have some practices that we need to change because as we write more code, we write more technical debt into it. Right. I have no idea where we are, but we're getting better. (laughs) Isn't that what you think as a software developer all the time? You hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I do have these moments of clarity and then I figure out that they're total crap, right? (laughs) It's, It's like, oh, yeah. We've arrived. Never mind. So, so with all these these metrics, these, these numbers we can put on a screen that tell us to refactor our code, this can lead to the anti-pattern where we're just making refactorings to get this number to where we want it. You, know, you got so some cool. architect looking at the your your dashboard saying your, your your CCN needs to be below four, and you just make some brain dead refactor that just gets the CCN to where someone else wanted it. Um, how do you how do you avoid doing that? I try not to stress uh, too much about uh, about metrics values. As as somebody of you were saying before, sometimes it's just nonsensical. You know, it's just numbers, and they they sometimes have no relation with the with the actual status of of your code. And sometimes it's just not important because uh, if you have a wrong parentheses, some sometimes it doesn't mean you're a bad architect or it doesn't mean your your application is hard to maintain just because you, I'd say the um, the style the Swift style guy is not respected. What actually does instead is to uh, create a sort of a team goal uh, for the long term. You know, you know where, where your goal at. You doesn't mean you actually have to uh, get it a hundred percent, but it keeps you focused. Sometimes it can be, you know, it can be. It could be fun to to see how people code and how all your colleagues work. We all work differently. It basically creates kind of a team cohesion in which everybody has the same goal, and that can be kind of kind of good to see in uh, in teams with four or five people. Yeah. Well, the other thing is, is I think a lot of times we'll get somebody who used some of these tools in a past job, and so they have this idea that. In that code base, we were able to get 99% code coverage, which is another automated tool that I'm pretty sure you have in your talk. Um, but at the same time, you know, this particular set of code, for whatever reason, just doesn't play along that way that well. So you have to look at it and really try and figure out, okay, what what are we trying to do here? What are we measuring you know, what are the implications of keeping track of these numbers? And are there any better ways of knowing that we're getting where we want to go? And I think, I think that's kind of the idea that you're trying to put forward is that you don't always know that. You don't always know the answers to some of those questions. Or sometimes you know where you want to wind up and you know what the code should look like, but you're not really sure how to measure that. And so you pick something that gets you part of the way there. You set up your dashboard so it gives you the information you think you want. And then you can slowly move ahead from there to figure out, okay, 
well, what if we take this number and we change the way that we look at it slightly? Or what if we measure something else and put that into the overall equation of how are we doing? And then you start to make real progress. But yeah, the numbers for numbers sake is definitely a dangerous road. Most of the time, those tools can can't replace your, your confidence. I mean, you can have really, can score really uh, good um, notes on that. But still, it doesn't mean you're a good developer or your code is perfect, actually. It doesn't mean much uh, of that. Actually, today, of course, uh, and it, maybe it's the best part of your job, is that nobody can replace your your confidence as a developer, uh, your experience, your vision, your, your reads. Uh, so that doesn't help much. It's good to, to have it, to have a shared goal, as I said before but it doesn't make you uh, worse or a better developer. Yeah, I know, you know, there's lots of times when I'll write code and I know it's bad, but you know what, I'm okay with it because I know it might get thrown away or there's some purpose behind that. But it does seem like a tool like this can help you maybe in those situations where you had to rush through something or things didn't quite go as planned and then you have time to go back and, and, and make it better. When does this yeah. ever happen? That is also a good question. Maybe it doesn't. <laughs> that was more rhetorical. Well, what's fun of that is actually, and what I like of, of Swift today, is that before, I mean, especially with Objective-C, doing all this uh, metric stuff was such a pain in the ass process because it sometimes worked, it, sometimes it didn't. So you just spent much time trying to fix tools, and then you spent like a half a day fixing a given tool and not refactoring. And so that was completely crazy and useless. Uh, what's fun with Swift is that it's not only, you know, a, a language with uh, good new features, but also it was the occasion for uh, the community to reinvent the tools and to make uh, uh, better uh, instruments. So today setting up uh, metrics for, for a Swift project is like, 10,000 faster than it was back in the days of Objective-C. And that 10,000 is a personal metric. So I'm wondering, though, is that because Swift is built in such a way that it enables that? Or is that because the community is that much further ahead now in understanding how these tools should work? No, I guess it's not only because of the capabilities of the language. Uh, I'd say even not at all. Actually, it's because all of a sudden the community realized that there were uh, and there still is a lot of stuff to do. Everybody, or many, many people in the community started, started to think, well, what if we had linting in Swift? And so they had Swift lint. And what if uh, we, uh, we can have a proper handling of code coverage? And what it's what Apple did and what Slather does as well. I saw your talk at, at AllConf this year, uh, 2016. And Based on where Swift was the year before, I was completely blown away by how much the community had rallied around tools like this. So I was pretty, I was pretty impressed. Yeah, it moves really, really fast. I love tooling aside from metrics. The lots, there is lots of stuff which has been done in just two years. You can think about Carthage, about Swiftlint, about there is a, a Swiftlint competitor which is called Taylor, which is almost just does the same thing. There are lots of uh, services out there which already support Swift. And uh, I'd say uh, AppCode supports Swift uh, since uh, like the very first days. 
So there is there is much hype, and it's a good hype around a good hype around the language, and that's uh, I guess just positive. So if somebody decides, okay, you know, I, I really want to see what these numbers are for my project. I think they'll help me evaluate the code and know if we're moving in the right direction. Where do you suggest they start? Are there particular metrics they should start plugging in? And should they set them up on some kind of automated system so that they can see them? Or are there other better ways of of doing this kind of thing just to get going so that people have the information about their code and code quality? The very first thing we can do as beginners uh, is to start with um, what Apple offers. And the first value for that is code coverage. Code coverage since last year is supported by Xcode out of the box. It was already supported before, but it, it was uh, an old format, which is was Gcov. It was uh, hard to exploit and to read. Uh, nowadays, it's much easier. And what's fun is that uh, code coverage provided by Xcode is also supported by the Xcode bots and the Xcode server. So with almost no experience, you can set up your uh, building machine with a uh, an Xcode server and already understand how your code is covered, of course, if you do tests. Another thing which is really, really straightforward to apply is SwiftLint, once again, because SwiftLint uh, can be added as a build step and provides uh, an Xcode compatible uh, information. And that information is just like the Clang one or the SwiftC one is uh, basically quite simple to integrate that into your Xcode uh, build steps and have your uh, lines be highlighted if uh, something is not good. And what's great with that is that it's also supported uh, out of the box with, with no hacks with uh, the Xcode boats. So yeah, that, that's quite easy. And with that, you can get at least a, a psychomatic complexity threshold as well as a basic uh, a side guide checking, and of course, code coverage. Have we talked about code climate yet? I don't think we've mentioned it. Anyway, um, I, I've used code climate in the past. Looks like they've made some pretty good progress. Uh, they have a free command line interface tool that you can use yeah, locally totally. now. That's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. Is code climate available for Swift? I, I haven't looked it, at it recently. It looks, like, it looks like it is, yeah. Actually, yes. It it supports Swift and uh, also supports, uh, I mean, it already supported Swift in a way because uh, you can go through Slather, which is another tool I haven't still haven't talked about, which is basically a converter from uh, any kind of um, Xcode uh, code coverage information like Gcov or the, the Prof Data, which is the newest one, and can convert that to uh, uh, almost anything else. So let's say Cobertura, which is a XML format, or um, Code Climate format, or JSON, or other. What other tools are, are we missing? There's Hound. Hound uh, is uh, another service, just like Code Climate. Uh, Hound, uh, I guess you, you Rubyist already used that for, uh, for, checking, uh, for checking style guides. Yeah, Hound's been around for a while. I've emailed back and forth with those folks, and it looks like a really cool tool. The Swift part of Hound uh, uses SwiftLint, 
and so you get the same the same information you get locally by running Swiftlint, and it integrates via on GitHub. So it's uh, super easy to set up. You just have to um, to come to uh, create an account on Hound and link your project on GitHub, and that's basically all. And actually, Hound comments your your code directly on on GitHub, and uh, it's kind of it's kind of fun to use. Another tool which is similar is CodeCop. It's just like Hound. Uh, I mean, I prefer Hound for personal reasons uh, because it supports, uh, it's cleaner, but also CodeCop does the same thing and it's based on, on Taylor, which is uh, like a rival of SwiftLint. Taylor, SwiftLint, I get it. Y- yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, uh, I guess uh, we it's, not, it's still not over with uh, Taylor frameworks. Uh, Every two months, we have a new Taylor thing in Swift. Very cool. So we should, we should add Taylor spelled like the, the job, T A I L O R. Oh, yeah. If, if yeah. you're trying to do some Google Foo, you're going to have trouble. There it is. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, of course, I was talking about SonarCube. SonarCube doesn't support Swift out of the box. It's actually built uh, upon other tools like Lizard, uh, Slather, SwiftLint, and integrated. Uh, Grammar uh, sparser for uh, for Swift actually needs uh, a plugin, which is an open source plugin, uh, which uh, can retrieve all that information from different sources and build uh, your value into the into the tool. So I want to hear about FrenchKit. Let's tell us about the conference. So FrenchKit is a is a conference here in Paris, France, of uh, one day uh, and a half. Uh, September 23rd and 24th. Uh, we have uh, 10 speakers from uh, around the world. We have Boris Bugling, uh, Jesse Squires, uh, Marin from Alcatraz. And uh, so we have a full day of conference on Friday, an afternoon on Saturday with uh, activities uh, for the community like uh, classrooms, which is like a uh, genius bar for developers in which we will uh, talk in more detail with uh, about some Eric's or about uh, accessibilities or uh, how to make, for instance, uh, a Swift web server. Actually, it's the first uh, iOS and macOS conference in in Paris, which is kind of uh, unbelievable uh, for a big city like Paris, but still. And uh, well, I'm working on that since uh, February. I'm, I'm I'm really really excited to do to be doing that. So uh, tickets are still uh, available on our website, which is frenchkit.fr. And, uh, well, it's one of the cheapest conferences here. I shouldn't say that, but uh, yeah, it's quite a, We are actually have a really, really low price point this day. All right. Well, it sounds like we're slowing down, so let's go ahead and hit some picks. Jane, do you have some picks for us? Sure, I've got one pick. So last week I picked Curl Builder, some API tools, and I attended a a meetup talk about API stuff where John Sheehan, who's a CTO of Runscope, who's been doing API development and testing and that sort of thing for a long time, he went through his list of API tools for people that are working with APIs and trying to make sure they're working like they want to. That includes us as iOS developers, even though we're on the client side. Uh, Things to just verify that everything's working correctly. So he gave a great list and I'm going to post the, the slide deck with a lot of tools. So we've got so many tools for our listeners today. So 
Lots of good stuff. All right, Lane, what are your picks? Uh, quick side note, James, the curl builder has like changed my life so far. So thank you. Just wait. Pick. Next level coming <laughs> down the road. Okay. Right now. Um, my pick is another book. Mainly my picks have been books because I've been completely wrapped in them. So all my free time has been going to them. Anyway, it's called The Hero of Ages. It's the last book of the Mistborn series by Brandon Sanderson. I've basically been reading for like two hours a day, which is a whole bunch for me. So good book. All right. I'm going to real quick or maybe not so quick. I have been quick picking this on the other shows. But uh, last week I went to Wood Badge, which is adult leader training for Boy Scouts. And it's a week long. And yes, you wind up camping while you do it. Um, I've heard of places where they do it in places where they have cabins, but that wasn't where I was. So I, I talk about it. And the more I talk about it to people, the more they're going, that sounds like one of those expensive executive retreats. And then I tell them that the attendee cost is like 150 bucks, and their jaw drops because it's just so awesome. It was a pretty incredible experience. And I feel like I came away from it both a better business person, a better leader, uh, not just a scout leader, but you know, in other ways as well. And yeah, I just, I just feel like I've got such a better handle on things. They talk some about scouts, but it's mostly about leadership and team building and things like that. So, and I don't know if I can really do it justice without somebody having already gone. Um, but anyway, it was absolutely amazing and I, I loved it. So I'm going to pick that. It was held up at the Typhi Boy Scout Camp, which is at the Mountain Dell Boy Scout Ranch. It's above Mount Pleasant, Utah. So it's kind of halfway up the mountain. And so you're up on this bench and you just have this beautiful view over the valley and things like that. It was, it was a great place to have it. And my other pick is going to be Boy Scouts of America, just because I think it's a terrific organization that does great things for young men and young women if they want to get involved in the venturing program. So if you're involved in scouts or you want to be involved in scouts, then go do it because it's all volunteer basis. So you just volunteer, you have to do a little bit of training and then you can be a leader and then go to wood badge. So yeah, that's my pick. Uh, Simone, what are your picks? My, my pick is a uh, postal, which is a framework, which is made by an old colleagues of mine it is a Swift framework, which provides uh, access to commonly made providers like uh, iCloud. So the interesting of that is that actually you don't need to uh, fetch your mail by using MailCore, Ma MailCore provided by Apple. You can do on uh, with a different method. And uh, it's kind of cool because it has a nice Swift uh, API and it supports, uh, of course, connecting to your uh, mailbox via IMAP or uh, POP and also sending uh, via SMTP. And also supports searching, uh, which is which is great. So you can search with the, uh, different filters on your uh, on your mailbox, and you don't have you don't have to give uh, Apple or uh, the system your credentials. So it stays in your app basically once you have integrated it. All right, cool. Well, if people want to follow up with what you're doing or check anything out that you know on Twitter or things like that, what do they do? People can follow me on, on Twitter, on my account, which is BitInfinity. Uh, and uh, they can follow my my company's blog, which is uh, Xibia. And the blog is uh, blog.xibia.fr. It's uh, in French, I'm sorry. But it still has a kind of, uh, of good articles about development in, in general. 
And of course, follow our um, FrenchKit uh, Twitter account, which is FrenchKitKind. And also be sure to uh, not to miss the updates from Coco Head Paris, which uh, organizes the conference with me. All right. Very cool. Well, thank you for coming and talking to us about this. It's been awesome. We'll go ahead and wrap up the show and we'll catch you all next week. Okay. Bye-bye.